Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPG, the podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hi folks, and welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPG. This week, we're actually going to discuss the internet versus reality in the context of gaming, in that we see all these podcasts and streams, be it Critical Role or any other any other one of a number of actual play podcasts out there. And while I've never gotten a chance to participate in one of those, and neither has other Steve here, we decided that we would do something special and get a guest. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome GM Eric, who is the Game Master for the Eberron Renewed podcast, as well as one of the hosts of the Geek Pantheon podcast. So hello, welcome, Eric. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome to our podcast. (laughs) Yes, you get the distinction of being the first person not named Steve on this podcast. I'm very honored. I, I can I can take the honorarium for the time if you if you want. I can well, yeah, you can be Steve Eric. Okay. <laughs> so in any case, I don't know where you want to start, but kind of I think where you know a lot of our listeners come. You know, how did you get into gaming in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so I definitely got into tabletop role playing a lot later than I think most most people. It was right at the tail end of college when 4th edition was ramping up. And one of my friends who was really into World of Warcraft at the time, I don't know where he stumbled across 4th edition, but, you know, D&D was something I think you're kind of aware of before you get into it, especially if you're a nerd. And so he was just like, I think we should check this out. I think we should play it and I'll run it for you and it'll be great. And so... We ran Keep on the Shadowfell. The starter adventure for fourth edition was my first ever gaming experience. And then fell head over heels, transferred to Pathfinder, did some Star Wars role-playing game when Fantasy Flight Games came out with their system, then came back around to fifth edition. And now I am firmly planted in the Genesis wheelhouse. Yeah, we've actually uh, been planning to get GM Chris on to explain the narrative dice a bit. But as of yet, we've been having scheduling conflicts so we have yeah, he's, he's a busy guy <laughs> i would imagine i look at the volume that gets put out of podcasting on his end and it's like oh my god how do yeah. you do that <laughs> you know even if if you only record them that's still like 12 hours a month <laughs> now you said the only version of star wars you played was the fantasy flight version or was that the end of the the watsy days Fantasy Flight was the the first version of Star Wars that I ever played. I never got into Saga Edition or West End or anything like that. See, now I started gaming in actually my freshman year of college, but that was still back in the West End days. Okay. And Steve started in 4th Edition. Yeah, I, I started much like you on 4th Edition, but hated 4th Edition, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I got away from that as fast as possible and actually went back to 2nd Edition, so that was where okay. I cut my teeth we didn't hate fourth edition because we didn't know anything else and then we started picking up eberron pre-published adventures like whisper of the vampire blade and voyage of the golden dragon and started reading more about 3.5 and was like oh look at these like prestige classes and all this crazy stuff and so that's what led us to pathfinder to kind of switch over once our group felt comfortable with with fourth edition and then making that switch I found a lot of people, a lot of people did that switch. A lot of people went from 4th edition to Pathfinder. Yeah. There, there's still a ton of things that I house rule, though, into my my 5e games from 4th edition. Like, there were some good things, in my opinion. But, yeah. There were a few, but I, I really think, I think 4th edition was a misstep on, 
on uh, <laughs> what's he send. So, yeah, I have said it before and, and I don't want to blame it entirely on that, but I actually stopped gaming for a while that happened to coincide with the launch of fourth edition. Gotcha. I own a four E PHB, but I reread it about a year and a half ago or started rereading it and just started cringing all over again. <laughs> So what was the catalyst for you to start podcasting and start getting into actual play podcasting? Yeah, I fell down a pretty deep podcast rabbit hole, starting with, ironically, talking about GM Chris with the Order 66 podcast, because I'd never even heard of FFG Star Wars system before stumbling across that. So started listening to that. Then I started listening to the campaign podcast when they were doing their actual play set in Star Wars dice for brains and just kind of hit a point where I was like, you know, it seems like it's not a huge cost sink to get into this. And so got a couple of friends together and started the geek Pantheon podcast because anytime you're a content creator starting out, your obvious initial instinct is to cover as broad a topic as possible. So, so many people will come listen and then you realize nobody's going to listen to just three random people talk about pop culture for an hour. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, so then started narrowing the focus to D&D and it was it was actually through conversations with GM Chris because I was kind of ribbing him that we Geek Pantheon show was on D20 radio and I was joking with him that the name of the network is D20 and not a single show is focused on a D&D system. Uh, and so that's where the knowledge check and Eberron Renewed came from was out of trying to find our our niche. And we had that little mini arc at the tail end of the Geek Pantheon's life where we played D&D and then spun off into doing an actual play show of our own. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm going to be playing D&D anyway, so might as well stick a mic in front of everybody and force them to create content for me. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's where just my podcasting career kind of started and how it evolved to be in the tabletop role-playing game space. Well, I've heard you joke on the air before that you got tired of people not showing up, so you decided to make it a podcast, so they (laughs) felt like it was a job. Yep, increase the obligation, yep. So that being said, neither Steve or I have ever been part of a actual play podcast, you know, and obviously, yeah, we do this one, but this is, well, essentially it grew out of us standing in the parking lot shooting a breeze for two hours after game sessions like well <laughs> you know we should just record this because at worst we're still having the conversation yeah uh <laughs> you know but like what did what were the first things i guess because i know from tables i've sat around versus games i've listened to or streams i've watched although i i listen to more games than i watch streams that it's the same thing but it is different so what's like the, the first thing that stood out to you when you started recording and went, oh, wow, this is not the same? Yeah, I, I think it was on my end and you're know, trying to set the tone for the table of, OK, I, I need to be a lot more cognizant of the timing of things and knowing that we wanted to release hour long episodes, not do super epic long episodes once a month, but rather chop things up. So from Jump Street, when I was planning my sessions, it was very much with a episodic mindset. And so setting things up to where you plan your session with like cliffhangers and end of episode buttons and and things like that. So I think establishing that kind of feeling and tone, it was the first thing to infect the players because after around an hour, hour and a half of play, they would start trying to find the moments where they could have the button. Like they could say 
the super cool line to end the episode kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the first thing was being mindful of the episodic structure. And I did lay down ground rules. We didn't even really have a session zero. But as I was recruiting people to be on the show of saying, okay, this is a family friendly show. So I know if we were just sitting around a table playing D&D, we might use swear words for super awesome moments and make off color humor and things like that. And we need to keep that to a minimum, if not outright eliminated from our show. And so that, that was another big thing is people were more aware that they were doing this for an audience. Okay. That, yeah. You know, I did notice, and and I would actually compliment you on being able to time it out because, you know, list having listened to your entire first campaign, you do manage to nail that so close to the hour and I know from going through our stuff when I edited it that how you managed to do that within two to three minutes is a mystery to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, and honestly, games that are not for broadcast, it has really fundamentally shifted the way that I plan out my sessions. Like we just had last night, we played a one shot for one of our Patreon tiers. And planning that session was very much act one, act two, act three, the same way I plan out the sessions for the show because it creates a really good flow that I find. And it, it helps me make sure that there are three big moments of excitement for each hour of play and really try to build out that structure. And so I, I think it's benefited me as a GM overall taking that approach to campaign planning or session planning, rather. I was going to say, it does sound like it's it's really changed the way you prep and plan. Yeah. I know for me, I mean, I'm chronically busy and therefore have become pretty good at flying by the seat of my pants when I GM. But, you know, I, I never, I guess, conceptually thought of it, you know, especially in, in your case where you're doing hour long episodes that you need to create that hour as a standalone, even though it's part of a, a larger narrative. Yeah, I think a big part of it is knowing knowing my players at the table is is a big one. And so I can anticipate how long reasonably it's going to take them to accomplish something. And sometimes I am horribly off. The The most recent episode of Eberron Renewed that released is actually an hour and 20-something minutes because I had plotted out, and most, most of this stuff is in my head. It's just like, okay, when they get to this point, that's the button for the episode. This thing will happen, and then end of episode, and we'll do the outro. Mm -hmm. And it took them 20 minutes longer to get to that point than what I thought it was going to take. And so it was just like... Okay, well, I'm not just going to cut the episode off in the middle of them planning, so we're going to continue pushing through until we hit that point. So it is more of an art than a science of trying to figure that out, and sometimes you get it wrong, but... That's fair. <laughs> like I mentioned, and I, I've said it before on our podcast, one of the things that I noticed when we did a test recording of a, a session I ran online also was how much time I spent pausing, thinking, and, and just using filler words, be it um... Like, you know, those type of things just to kind of bridge silences and be it listening to you or other podcasts. When it's a podcast, you know, there's that back of your mind sense that, okay, well, they're editing this. So those could be there. I'm just not hearing them. But when you watch a stream and in particularly something you know, like Critical Role that's live, I mean, it's like, holy heck, how did, you know, I listen to me and then, you know, the next day at work or whatever, I'm listening to an episode of Critical Role, and I'm like, wait, how, how do they do this? Yeah, and, and you could definitely tell when you go watch the live stream of the finale for our first campaign on our YouTube channel, 
you can tell that I mean I take a machete to our <laughs> to our audio only episodes when it's not being live streamed. I am definitely guilty of a lot of ums and and so's and yas and likes and long pauses. And so I definitely agree that most of the time, if you're listening to a podcast, especially, you need to assume that there is a heavy amount of editing going on on the back end. And then for something like Critical Role, they are literally all professional actors. They speak for a living in a manner similar to what they're doing. And so holding yourself to the standard of a literal professional is always a dubious thing to do at the best of times. Yeah. Well, we know someone who is his called Critical Role the D&D version of porn and <laughs> it's one of those where I go well he's not right but he's not exactly wrong either yeah you know I mean I don't think they would play a ton differently if they were still just playing in Matt and Murray's living room but you don't know and they're like you said they're all professional actors they're using skills to play a game that we play for fun with skills that they've developed to make a living for however long. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I agree that I think the quality of their game would be at a very high level if it were just at a home table, them hanging out, having a good time. I do think, and this speaks to what many people have dubbed the Matt Mercer effect of this unrealistic expectation of what D and D is. I mean, you watch any episode of critical role, you can just go pluck a random one out. And the thing that you'll note that is unlike, I think any, just at home D and D game is everybody around that table is constantly paying attention to what is happening in the moment at the table so that they can in character react to what's happening. Nobody's getting up to go run to the bathroom or go refill their drink when it's not their turn or checking their phone real quick. Cause it, it buzzed in their pocket. Like everybody is there and it's they're present for the entirety of the four hours. And that is a very unrealistic thing to expect a home game to maintain. But in order to achieve the level of quote unquote quality that Critical Role achieves, I think that is necessary. And so it's this double edged sword of even on Ever Unrenewed, like everybody is 90% of the time focused in paying attention, reacting in the moment. And that's just not something that happens at home games. And it's it's unrealistic for a DM to tell all of their players, okay, everybody, put your phones away, no checking. Uh, we'll go to the bathrooms on the break. Like, that's just, that that's a bit much, in my opinion, for a home game. Yeah. Well, and I know, like, at our table, we have been known to use, be it messenger, texting, whatever, instead of passing notes. Yeah. But that is actually something I, I did want to ask that, that I had thought of was, do you feel like you get, more engagement at the table. Obviously now you're recording remotely, but believe for most of the first campaign you recorded in person whenever possible. Do you feel like you get more engagement when you're playing, knowing that you're recording than you do if you're just playing? Oh, I I mean, absolutely. I think that having both myself and the other players aware that we are creating a product as opposed to just having fun. And we all have a great time. We enjoy playing the game or else we wouldn't be doing it because at the end of the day, it is a hobby. Like we call it a job and we treat it like professionals, but we're not getting paid. Nobody's getting a paycheck from Ever Unrenewed. But I, I really do think, especially in person, you can see it in the the live streams that we've done where everybody is there, everybody is focused, paying attention, interjecting with the narrative that's going on. 
And when I've run home games with those players at the table, it's it's a completely different atmosphere. It's a completely different environment because it is pure fun at that point. And if we need to wait three minutes while we hit somebody's turn and, oh, they ran to the bathroom, it's not a big deal at a home game. It might be a little annoying, but it's not a huge deal. Whereas when you're recording it, it it's a lot more of an issue to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of recording. Yeah. Well, no, too, you know, if, if it's your turn and you've got a mouthful of pizza, if it's just around the table, no one cares. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's one thing, and I'll apologize to Jeff right now, but I don't mean this as bad as it's going to sound. I, I do have to offer you compliments for wrangling the cat that is Jeff's attention span. Uh, and I think he would probably uh, say that himself, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and it's funny. I I think it's it's a great tool for a lot of uh, listeners potentially to listen to Jeff in campaign one, and now listening to Trevor in campaign two. Because I mean, with Jeff, the the short one shot that we did on the Geek Pantheon was the only other role playing game experience he had ever had before Eberron renewed. Like he wasn't just learning how to operate in a audio medium while playing D&D. He was literally learning what it means to be at a tabletop role-playing game table in real time. And so, yeah, I think you can definitely, especially early on in campaign one, hear some of the growing pains that he went through figuring out what it means to be ready on your turn and be present and make those checks and everything. And so, yeah, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. And it's interesting to to potentially listen back. I, I can't imagine what it would be like for Jeff to listen back starting at the top of campaign one and listen to yourself literally figure out how to play D&D in real time. Yeah, well, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, you, Jeff, and Philip all have, I'll call it local theater backgrounds at minimum? Yeah. So Trevor and I both studied in the same program in college. We, we both went to college for theater. And then actually Randy, Jeff, and Philip all have performed theater. Randy, Jeff, and I, and Trevor have all performed at the same theater, and Philip performed in college. So yeah, we all have an acting background, some of us more than others. Yeah, I wasn't aware that, that Randy had the tie, and I kind of had gathered that the rest of you did. Now, another thing, and maybe this is a little unfair to ask because I think you have a little bit of a limited sample, do you think that because the players are aware it's for recording, do you think you get additional buy-in to the setting and the plot just because they know it's for broadcast? Yeah, I, I think you get a little extra everything when you have that buy-in from everybody of, hey, we are doing this for an audience. And people are willing to dive more headfirst into accepting things about the setting and just picking up things and running with them. And I think you can kind of, you can hear the level of experience that players have outside of recording a podcast with their tabletop role-playing game experience. So like Philip obviously has a ton of experience. We started playing at the same time, actually, but Philip has a bi-weekly game that he runs and he also has another game on the weekends. I mean, Philip plays the most out of any of us. And I think you can hear that in not how critical he is, but how inquisitive he is and how how much he sounds like a, a D&D player for lack of a better way to put it. Whereas I feel like you listen to somebody like Jeff or Trevor, whose entire tabletop role-playing game career has been for an audience, I would argue they come across much more like a performer, where they just yes and and pick up things and run with them. Whereas Philip clearly has a clear idea of his own character's motivations, goals, and worldview. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it is, though. For me, it's interesting to listen to your show because you also, and I don't really have a read on Trevor just yet. You know, it's only been however many episodes in the new campaign. I've known the man for 12 years and I don't have a read on Trevor yet, so it's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have, with Jeff, Philip, and Randy, you have three very different players. And, you know, Philip, I would say, has a, a flair for dramatic impact. Jeff, more than anything, is looking to keep things moving. And then you have Randy, who, like, I want to say he's he's incredibly dedicated to his character, and he all of you are. But with, call it a spoiler if you want, but the Dragon Shard thing in the last third of, of Campaign 1, where Randy knew full well that Booyah was getting hosed, but he went on with it because he was that dedicated to Booyah. Yeah, and that that's what makes a player like Randy such a joy to to play with is because consequences be damned, he's going to do what he thinks his character is going to do and nobody's going to talk him out of it. And I think every every table should have a player like Randy because Randy is just up for whatever. And we we joke with Randy sometimes that he only remembers that we're doing a podcast half the time because he's just happy to be there, happy to play D&D and uh, is excited to to get to play his character. Yeah, well, and I, you know, Randy, I do very much get the vibe that while he might be conscious of it, that is the furthest thing from the front of his head is that there's actually a mic in front of him. Yeah, I mean, he would he would be giving the same level of dedication to his character, whether or not we were producing a, a show. And I, I can't think of any instance where Randy, the player, has made a different decision than what he would have made ha- were we not recording. Like there are definite things that I know Philip would have done differently or Jeff would have done differently if our show wasn't for an audience. But I I really think Randy just is going to do Booyah and now is going to do Milo. And if people like it, great. If not, they don't. And he doesn't care. And as a result, if you like, I will occasionally go on an Internet hunt for people talking about Everon Renewed. And I joke that like Randy is the most beloved player looking at what <laughs> the conversations are online. Like everybody's like, Randy's so great. So uh, I think that's a benefit when you can just lock into your character and still be entertaining. I think that's the important thing is that Randy as a player, Randy was in a, a campaign that Philip and I co-ran for three and a half years. And he played a, a halfling swashbuckler named uh, Amaron Athelfric. Was the name. And it, it was the exact same. Like you could have put a mic in front of him and you would have had a show because he's just that type of player. Yeah. It, I was going to say, you can tell you guys have a, a, a pretty strong dynamic, you know, even when the mics are off. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's a great thing and, and something that gets lost on a lot of people with the show like Critical Role also is that you can tell that all of the people playing enjoy each other's company and have a good time together. And I think so many actual play shows that get put together, like it, it's it's a group of people that come together for the sake of doing a show exclusively. You miss a lot of that joy that you get around home games where it's just a group of people having fun, enjoying playing D&D together. And I think certain shows that are born out of either an existing home game in the case of Critical Role or a group of existing friends coming together to produce a show like Eberron Renewed, you hopefully can feel that level of joy that we have just playing together. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it does come across. Yeah, like you said, you know, Critical Role actually started as, oh, let's play D&D for Liam's birthday. Actually, it was Pathfinder yeah. at that point, but yeah, it was, let's play something for my birthday, and then, what are we now, five years later, and <laughs> yeah. it's the monster that it is. Yep, the gold standard for the hobby. 
And like, that's one of those things. And I feel bad sometimes referring to it constantly because I know sometimes you, you have people, especially some people that are maybe older in the community, a lot of the people more, you know, in my age bracket, like, well, we've been playing for years and blah, blah, blah. Well, look, they do it very well. Yeah. You know, like I said before, these are skills that they use to make a living. I mean, Ashley Johnson was just on a major TV series. Tallison's been acting since he was a kid, you know, not to mention all their voice work. Yeah. And for me, I actually listen to their podcast broadcast. I don't actually watch it very much. But I think that's the other thing is because it's tabletop role playing has always been very much a, a speaking medium where one person says something and you're playing off each other in that way. Them not just being actors, but being specifically voice actors. They're so much more, I don't want to say comfortable, um, more talented, for lack of a better way to say it, at being able to convey something with just their voice than most of us are. You know, like, I know the, you know, I had listened to, I don't know how many episodes of the Critical Role podcast before I actually saw it, and it was really weird for me to see them just sitting at a table, and especially like Matt, switching between these voices while he's just, like, sort of sitting there. Where yeah. I know for me, I would be waving my arms all over the place and moving around. and No, I think that that is something that comes out a lot more, at least for us, when we are doing things for radio, as we put it. And it has affected some choices on the show. Like if you go back and listen to the first episode where Randy introduced the character Theradak and Theradak's voice, we definitely, after that initial session with Theradak, you could hear Theradak's voice become less and less uh, extreme, for lack of a better way to put it, mm -hmm. because it was just like, we need to adjust a little bit because people are going to be listening to this exclusively, and we need to make sure that everybody can understand what's being said. So certain tweaks are made when you're making it for an audience, and I agree that with the cast of Critic Role, having the, the capacity to emote as much as they do with just their voice, because that is where their paychecks come from, definitely helps but i think you also see when you when you watch i think something that a lot of people miss when they're trying to affect different voices and trying to do accents is i'm just as guilty as anybody else of this if you go watch critical role and watch matt mercer as he switches between these different voices something very vital that i think a lot of dms don't think about is watch how much Matt's face shape changes, how much he realigns his jaw or his neck or his shoulders. So much of that plays into what your voice sounds like. And we tend to think like, no, I just like raise or lower the timbre and I add an accent and make a little gruff. But if you like actually scrunch your neck down and bring your jaw forward and furrow your brow, you get so much more out of your voice by doing that kind of stuff. And I think that's just a good thing for any DM to do is just start getting your whole body involved when you're trying to do that voice and it'll be a lot more impactful. Oh, okay. Is any of that stuff that you learned in your theater background as well, or is this all stuff you just picked up? Yeah. A, a lot of the, the manipulation of the body to affect the voice is definitely something that I got trained on when I was studying theater and how you align your body and how that affects your voice. Now, primarily my training was in the concept of being in a 2,500 person house and making sure that your speaking voice projects to the back row. But 
you you kind of can manipulate that to different effects once you know how the tool works, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I hadn't thought of it. It makes perfect sense. Now, that is one funny thing that you run into, though, with people of differing backgrounds is so Jeff was really big into choral singing in college, and he he is much more of a singer first before an actor. But both of us have extensive experience performing in a theater and we still do it on a regular basis and Trevor's the same way. And if I were to show you all the raw unprocessed waveforms of our different audio files, you can absolutely tell who the people are that when they're performing, they just instinctively project their voice and the people that don't because I have to bump up Randy and Phillip's audio and bring me, Jeff and Trevor's way down because the audio levels are so disparate when performers go into performance mode kind of thing. So that's that's the funniest thing about like seeing people's different backgrounds on these type of formats is you can definitely tell when somebody on an actual play show is used to performing in front of a live crowd because they will be so much louder than anybody else at the table. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, I I actually used to work in radio back in my teens, you know, some in college. So talking to a microphone is something that uh, I kind of learned a long time ago and I'm not as conscious of as, as some people you know, and I know that's not something that everyone does because you, you do speak a little differently to a microphone than you would just, just talking. So I guess to, to get back to a little bit maybe of, of what we were trying to talk about, though, what specifically a new player, someone who has been listening to or watching Critical Role or listening to Be It Your Podcast or The Adventure Zone, or there's thousands of them out there, what type of things do you think, knowing what you know now, you would want to tell someone who's who's consumed this media and now wants to go play a game, what would you tell them in terms of should they temper expectations on these fronts or not feel so intimidated on these fronts or, or anything in the, along those lines? Yeah, I, I think the, the phrase tempering expectations I think is appropriate, but also, I don't know, kind of disheartening. Like anytime you tell somebody who's excited about a thing to temper their expectations, you're basically telling them to calm down and you, you don't want to like you don't want to diminish their excitement. I think that the the best analogy that I can make is if you are new to D&D and you've enjoyed actual play shows and you've enjoyed listening to them and consuming them and watching them, especially something like Critical Role, where it is, I think, inarguably the cream of the crop of what you could get from a DM or players on both sides of the table. It's the equivalent of if you are in eighth grade or fifth grade or something and you're watching the 1990s bulls playing basketball and you're like i want to go play basketball you cannot expect to play at the level that they are playing out of the gate from day one or, or for more uh, younger listeners lebron james like if, if you're watching him play basketball and you're like i want to play basketball and then you immediately get frustrated that you can't play like lebron james then yeah you need to realign what you expect to be capable of because it is a skill set it is a tool set that you develop over time I cannot count how many times I was nose deep in a source book or a pre-planned adventure the first two years that I was DMing. I relied on the written word as a crutch so much. And that's something that you don't see somebody like Matt Mercer doing. Matt Mercer is looking at his players constantly, engaged, talking, and has the confidence to just make a call and say, well, we'll just do this. And going off script is definitely something that 
is daunting for a lot of new players and new DMs when the adventure just goes completely off the rails. So I, I think that if you're a new player looking to get to a table and play, I think just knowing that you're you're at the beginning of a long journey to get to the place that you want to be and that everybody at your table is at potentially different places in their journey. Or if it's everybody is new, like it's a group of Critical Role fans getting together to play a game. Yeah, you you all are starting on what is an exciting but very long journey to get to a place where your table can be as free as what you see on Critical Role or when you listen to something like Eberron Renewed, where you have a dungeon master and players who are comfortable just going off the cuff and not having to rely on notes or or anything like that. And furthermore, always be aware that all of these properties are being made for your entertainment and your home game is being made for your own personal entertainment. But nobody is having to be concerned with a broad audience and making these big dramatic moments that are narratively satisfying. They'll happen. Every, every good D&D game has some level of narrative satisfaction, but you are not making your game for an audience. And so having the expectation that everybody is going to come to the table prepared to make it like it is being made for an audience is unfair. Like I said earlier, people are going to get up and go to the bathroom. People are going to go refill their drink. People are going to be having a mouthful of pizza when it's their turn. And those things would break the flow and the immersion of something like Critical Role. But it doesn't have to do that at your home game. It's fine. And and so I think acknowledging that the function of D&D or any tabletop role-playing game is for a group of people to come together to have fun. And that's like the first piece of advice that I tend to give Dungeon Masters when they have the anxiety of coming out of a session and thinking it was horrible and they did this wrong and they did that bad and they made the wrong rule call here. The question is, did the players have fun? If the answer is yes, then you did your job. You did a good job if your players had fun at the table, regardless of anything else. And so if you and your fellow players and the Dungeon Master are all having a good time at the table, then nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter if your DM is as good as Matt Mercer or if you create as fun a characters as Laura Bailey. Like that doesn't matter if you're having a good time playing the game. And so that would be the number one piece of advice to somebody who's getting into it based on those is going with the mindset to have a good time and the rest will come. And I completely agree with that. That's like my mission statement is, uh, <laughs> did you have fun? I, I always ask my table at the end of the day, did you have fun? And I think that's where a lot of people can get lost and, and a little confused is that they don't think to ask that question. Sometimes people want to want to be more closely to what you guys do with the podcast, with the live plays, you know, trying to get that get that feel but they lose it you know you lose the forest through the trees essentially yeah. and i completely agree with that you know i had never thought of it but the analogy to the 90s bulls is actually very good i mean that was i remember watching that team when i was the end of high school and in college uh, again giving away my age a little bit <laughs> but yeah and you know the one thing too that i think we've used the term several times here today people talk about that matt mercer effect and I want to say, you know, I, I think Matt is an incredible dungeon master, GM, whatever the appropriate term is, depending on what he's running. But the other thing that I don't think a lot of new people realize, and this goes for home games, broadcast games, anything, is that the experience at the table is a communal creation between everyone there. And while Matt is an incredible GM, all of his players are extremely talented as well. And so them playing off each other lifts every, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships or however the saying goes. 
Yeah, I mean, envision an episode of Critical Role where Matt is doing the exact same things that he does every episode, but every third or fourth turn, whatever player is coming up, when he says their name, they quickly look up from their phone and go, oh, sorry, what was that? (laughs) And imagine how different that table would be if that was going on. So I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that he has a table of excellent players But that's not to say that it's purely based on their talent or their career. It's that they are engaged and they are they care about the game. They care about the characters and they're constantly without interrupting and stealing the spotlight. They are constantly getting involved on each other's turns, whether it's table chatter or in character like calls to action or words of encouragement. They're they're constantly involved in each other's actions, which I think helps create that cohesiveness of the table. And I think is pretty vital if you want to have that that level of community around your table. And I will also say, in terms of the narrative satisfaction bit, yeah, I I, I put a lot more thought into the narrative story beats when I'm planning out a session or planning out a campaign for the podcast than I do for a home game. But that stuff still happens. The dice will dictate interesting narrative moments. My character that I had in our three and a half year campaign when Philip and I were alternating DM duties had an awesome death that looking back on was absolutely the only way that character's story could have ended. It wasn't planned out. It happened, and retroactively, you can look back and be like, um, that was a great story that that character had. But the dice dictated it, so you just need to be ready as a player to accept what the dice give you, and absolutely do not come in with your character's backstory, present story, and future written down, and like, okay, this is this is what I want my character's story to be. It's like, no, like, allow the table to create your character's story and run with the moments that are given to you, and that will make you feel like Travis or Liam or any that have these great character moments. I guarantee you none of their big character beats were pre-planned. I mean, you going back to campaign one of Critical Role, you know for a fact that Liam's character, I can never remember if it's Vax or Vex. I'm I'm one of those people. Um, Vax. (laughs) Vax. The whole Revenant Raven Queen storyline was born out of a failed check by Laura. And that became one of the central tenets of his character. And Mm -hmm. I guarantee you that wasn't pre-planned. So allow what happens at the table to dictate what your character is. Yeah, I like that advice. You know, you know, the dice are what they are. They're there to make it not just telling a story, to make it reaction. Yeah. Which is happening, you know, like... I've told Steve the story a time or two. One of the most fun sessions I ever ran actually ended in basically a TPK at their own hands. Yep. Because of a couple of dice rolls and one guy dies and then he starts playing the insanities of another character and it was a rifts game. So (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with that system at all, but it sort of spiraled. But at the same time, everyone had an absolute ball. We talked about it for years as the night Bubba went crazy. (laughs) because people were just like you said, just reacting. There was no planning. There was, oh, this happened. And the first guy that died went, okay, I'm going to now play the voices in your head. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. I think that might be something that the first season of Critical Role, and they they have since rectified this with Campaign 2, but the, the one disservice that I think Campaign 1 did, if any, is that everybody held onto their characters for the entirety of the campaign. And that can create an unrealistic expectation for players that their character that they create at level one 
has to make it through everything. Not to say that Matt was pulling punches. He absolutely was not, which I think is what created those resurrection scenes to have so much tension. But I, I think that, and Philip and I did an episode of the knowledge check where we talked about the fear of failure at the table. So quick side plug to go mm-hmm. uh, check out that episode if you, if you want to hear more on this topic. But I, I think that players and DMs both need to be okay with the idea of failure and okay with the idea of a mission completely going sideways or a character dying or uh, a quest for vengeance that's baked into your character's backstory not working out in their favor. I think that's a very important bit that players can take is that the interesting moments are the failures. And much like you're talking about, my favorite one shot I've ever been in was at a convention where it ended in not a TPK, but pretty much everybody died in their epilogue that we gave at the very end of the session. It was not a happy story. My character died pretty dramatically, and it's still one of my favorite game sessions I've ever played in because the failures are what the interesting bits are. The more I think about it, that is something maybe people do take away somewhat incorrectly from some of these broadcast games is that, oh, you know, this is happening because it's a show or they're not thinking about it, that it's a show. And maybe this happened because it's a show. Kind of both sides of that coin, I think, yeah. can play into it. So sort of to roll back to maybe expect the unexpected. When you were DMing, you know, obviously you're planning around doing these recorded sessions and, and doing that type of thing. How do you, as a DM, prepare for curveballs that your players are going to throw at you? Like, obviously you can only predict so much. <laughs> yeah. I think something that in a live play you cannot do as a dungeon master, but I've absolutely done during recording sessions for Eberron Renewed that I think is a great tool set for any DM is looking your players in the eye and saying, give me five minutes <laughs> and stepping away from the table, taking five minutes to collect your thoughts, process what just happened and create a game plan moving forward. You don't have to come up with the solution in the moment. And if you all have been playing for three and a half, four hours and a major curveball gets thrown at you, have it be a session cliffhanger and be like, okay, what happens next time? Find out. And then you could walk away from the table going, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. Okay, I need to figure out what the heck is going to happen. That's how I tend to handle major curveballs. Like in the first campaign of Eberron Renewed when they were in the jungles of Zendrick when the big moment happened, which I won't give any spoilers in case people are still listening. But I absolutely said, give me 10 minutes. And I went outside and collected my thoughts and thought through, okay, what the heck am I going to do? But at the same time, like I said earlier, it is a muscle. It is a skill set that you develop over time, the capacity to think through those moments and process them quicker and quicker and figure out what needs to happen. And additionally, the final tool is to just move the goalposts. If the players throw you a major curveball and go do something totally unexpected that you weren't anticipating them doing, just move whatever the objective of the session was in that direction. An example that we gave on one of the Knowledge Check episodes was if the party is on their way to a castle that you all are trying to fix up or raid or whatever the objective is, and they come across a corpse on the side of the road, and all of a sudden the party is like, oh, we have to find this killer. We have to find justice for this poor soul that was killed. And you're just like, I was just doing that for flavor to show that this is a rough part of the world. But okay, you all want to do an investigation now. Make the person that killed them tied to the big bad of your campaign. Make it part of the story. Tie everything together. That's what I tend to do when people throw me curveballs at a table is like, okay, what thing did I already have planned for this villain and how can this thing that the players are doing or investigating tie into that? 
So everything continues to come back to your session, to your story, but the players still have this sense of freedom that they can do anything they want. It's just that you're funneling everything in one direction. Yeah. I've often said, you know, and like I said, I, I tend to be more of an improv guy because I'm going too many directions to do as much prep as I should. But if you watch what the table does and, and see what they're reacting to, your players, if, if you're running the game, will telegraph to you what's interesting to them. And sometimes you kind of have to go, okay, here's my plan. We're going to put this over here. And we're going to roll with what they think is interesting. You know, as an example, the reduced episode that you just released, uh, what was that, last week? As we record yeah. the one where they went shopping. I'm sure that was kind of like, okay, you know, you in, in your head were like, okay, well, yeah, they're going to go buy some stuff and then we're going to play out this dinner party. Oh, yeah. Well, they decided, not to spoiler it, but they decided they wanted to play out this whole big thing at the market and you just yep. rolled with it. Yeah, I definitely thought that the dinner party segment was going to be the centerpiece and it became the very tail end of that episode. In moments like that, if you find yourself at the table and the party have decided, well, we want to go shopping at the market, we want to role play that out. It's like, okay, the, the biggest things to do in a situation like that is just pepper in the smallest details that can have a large impact, but then also ask your players for specifics on what they want to do. So in that moment, in that episode, Randy was the one that said, well, I want to go to this butcher named Jorgen. I want to go to his butcher shop and pick up some meat. And it's like, okay, great. You have created this character. I don't have to do that. So I just need to give them an interesting personality. And then when they got to Jorgen's, there was an ogre there picking up its order of a whole cow slung over its shoulder, walking out. That was just something that that's one of those minor detail things that can be impactful because the visual of a ogre walking out with an entire skin cow over its shoulder is so evocative that the players can be like, oh, that's that's really cool. You're never wrong, I guess, it, it, when it comes to role playing and world building, even if you're playing in an established setting like Eberron, as I do, I think I've established through my podcasting career in Eberron, like Canon is a loose uh, guideline for me. <laughs> I don't, I don't stick too hard to it. So as a dungeon master, just allow yourself to do whatever you think is going to be cool and interesting. If your players are throwing you a curveball, they're probably going to enjoy it. They're probably going to enjoy the snooty wine merchant who has his nose up in the air and treats the party like they aren't worth a second of his time, they're, they're going to find that compelling and interesting. So just little things like that give you so much more mileage than I think most dungeon masters give it credit for by just doing those little things, make the world feel so fleshed out and so planned. Like you intended them to go to the market. You intended them to meet this character because you're giving them so much detail and so much texture and if you just very flatly voice that wine merchant be like okay what do you want to buy from him okay that he says that'll cost eight gold pieces that's not as evocative as giving them a voice that you never have to do again the players aren't going to run into that wine merchant again who cares if you can't remember what voice you gave him just do something wacky over the top and then move on yeah that's fair tell me if you think i'm wrong but you were talking about your voices I would say in an environment like you are, where you're producing a game for broadcast and however many hundreds, thousands, whatever of people are listening to it, you're much more likely to get called out that the accent was different than if you're playing around the table with four friends. Yeah, absolutely. I think the most recent episode that released, if I remember correctly, I actually left in a bit of table talk that we had, and it was actually more production talk 
talking about Grum, the party's handler, uh, his accent as it was established in canon. And me just kind of like pulling the curtain back and saying, okay, listen, I don't remember what Grum's accent was. I think I did a gruff British accent, which I don't like. So I'm going to change his voice if that's cool with everybody. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, sure. But absolutely, especially in campaign one, got so much grief for essentially having three different accents, like posh British, gruff British, and my own voice. And doing my poking around the internet and Reddit and seeing what people are saying about the show and about us. Uh, I think one of the harshest things I ever read on the internet about me, which it's not that harsh, so I'm, I'm very fortunate, was the show is pretty good, but the dungeon master thinks he's a voice actor, but can only do two different voices. And I was like, okay, fair. <laughs> so, so yeah, you do get called out a lot more when you're doing it for broadcast. If you're doing it around your table, do your best. And your players might give you a bit of grief, but that's just part of the fun. There was a character in our our first campaign who actually shows up in in canon named Hallis Martin. And I'll never forget, I did this really over-the-top, overblown accent for him. And he was a reoccurring character in our campaign for a while. And it wasn't until years later, it was actually a couple months ago, where I brought him up and mentioned, yeah, I did a like a my accent for him oscillated pretty dramatically between Italian and Spanish, like Spain style. And Philip looked at me deadpan and was like, I honestly thought it was a French accent the whole time. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. So you don't have to be good if you're around your home table. You just have to go for it and make sure it's fun. Yeah, I actually had a, a similar experience in a campaign not too long ago. I thought I was using an Australian accent till the one other person at the table looked at me and went, well, at least it's not as annoying as an Australian <laughs> accent. And I kind of... It was like, well, that's what I thought I was doing. I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was at a convention playing in a game run by GM Hooley of the Forge podcast. And definitely the whole time thought I was doing a pretty decent Australian accent. And afterwards, I, I mentioned it to Hooley and Hooley looked at me and was like, I mean, it was a cool accent you were doing. It certainly was not Australian. <laughs> and as an Australian, I was like, oh, OK, well, that hurts a little <laughs> bit more coming from you. So. I'm one of the worst at accents. Our last session that we played in, I literally had one of my players look at me and go, I'm confused <laughs> on who's talking. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've definitely had that, especially in, in campaign one when I was trying to do like British accents constantly. And I think that's that's another production note that I took for myself going into campaign two that I think home games can also use is just because the setting is probably some version of Western European medieval style with some magic thrown on top, as is 90% of D&D settings out there, doesn't mean your accents all have to be from that region. Most of the accents I'm doing for campaign two are American accents because that's that's where I'm more comfortable. I can do different American regions much easier than I can do different British accents. Don't force yourself to try and be European just because you watched Lord of the Rings and they all talked with a British accent. Make somebody from Brooklyn. Make somebody from Idaho. Make somebody from Texas. And I think you might feel a lot more comfortable doing accents if you're just doing a Southern drawl as opposed to trying to do a Cockney accent. If you're American, obviously. If you're from Britain, then you're going to be a lot better at British accents. So... No, that's fair. And you know what? Even as a player, I remember somewhere in, in, I don't know if it was probably one of the Eberron reviewed episodes where Jeff basically said, you know, Dex's voice was just like, oh, mm -hmm. this is what my uncles talk like. So it doesn't have to be anything that's all that different. You don't have to use one in the first place, but just because it doesn't sound all that unusual to you doesn't mean that someone, you know, like we're both from 
greater Pittsburgh area. Well, if you've ever heard Billy Gardell, the actor comedian, one of his recent DVD releases, he does like a, a three to five minute bit at the beginning of it that if you're not from Pittsburgh, you're going, <laughs> what the hell is he talking about? Because he, he's, and we're going to go down the south side uh, and drink from the spigot and get a gum band. And he's all these things that are, you know, around here, we call them Pittsburghese. But if I were to affect that accent, playing a character on a broadcast, someone would be like, yeah, boy, he talks funny. Where at worst around here, they go, oh, you know, oh yeah, he thinks he's part of the, you know, the one morning <laughs> show crew or whatever, the one radio station. Yeah. And I, I think you can also, as a, a player or a game master, use accents to do a certain form of coding for your characters. If you like, like in campaign one, surrounded entirely by European accents in my GM repertoire, the reoccurring cab driver in Sharn had a Brooklyn accent because, you know, that's how all cabbies talk. And so it creates this assumption in your player's mind that you can either play into or subvert by doing a familiar accent and they will make assumptions about the character. If you do a really slow Southern drawl, almost yokel, they're going to make a lot of assumptions about that character that you can either that, that you can play with or just use as a shorthand for a know nothing NPC that's like, oh, okay, I understand what I need to understand about this character. Like the, the wine merchant in the shopping episode, I gave him a very posh, snooty British accent because that's all I needed to communicate to them was this is a super snooty person. They're talking this way. You understand. Moving on. Yeah. You know what? This just kind of occurred to me as you said that. That's also a great thing to use or you can use to taking it out of a broadcast context, but just as a way to misdirect your players, put an accent that they don't expect from the way you're planning mm -hmm. on using the character. But the other thing that you mentioned, it, it for some reason it popped into mind when you're talking about your wine merchant and personalities and so forth is people get hung up, I think, and I've done it myself, where you, you want players to remember your, your character for this or for that or, or for whatever. And it struck me one time I was watching TV and I was watching an old episode of MASH. And I realized that when Frank Burns came on screen... I had a reaction to that character and it was like, oh, he gets under my skin. And I went, that takes a lot of work and a lot of skill to portray a character that without being overtly bad, the audience mm -hmm. loves to hate. And yet at the same time, you could make an NPC version of that type of character very easily and the players would latch onto it, I think, in many cases and feel the same way. You know, another example that I was thinking of, and this may be what brought it back to mind, uh, my wife loves ER, mm -hmm. but the, the guy that played Dr. Romano and how much you kind of, oh, he's just such a, a, a prick. Yeah, I, I think that you can certainly use voice work and also it, it's a tough thing for a game master anytime you bring back an NPC that you thought was super interesting and super cool and the players all look at you as like, uh, who? Oh, right, right, right. We met them like six months ago. Oh, what was their name? Okay. Uh, and it's very disheartening. I have felt that from time to time where it's like, oh, this character has returned and everybody's like, uh, who? And I, I think that both the accent, but also you need to have them do things that affect the players or affect the characters in meaningful ways, whether or not it, it's swindling them. Uh, in the case of Gurnath Ikultarn, in spite of how ridiculous that name is, none of my players will ever forget that name because of what he did to them. You have to, you can't expect the players to remember every NPC if all you're doing is introducing them, giving them exposition, and then the NPC fades off into the background. You need to 
do bold things with these NPCs. If the players have acquired a magical item and you realize, oh no, we we are way too level for them to have that. I need to get them out of their ha- their hands somehow. Create an NPC that steals it from them. Your characters will never forget that NPC and in fact will spend until their dying breath their days hunting down that person. So I, I think creating those characters that are meaningful for the players and they're going to latch onto and love to hate is born out of their actions more than anything else. And my go-to villain accent is Tim Curry from Home Alone 2. I think that's like the the ultimate villain voice. So I, I try to throw that one on anyone anytime I want to convey a villainous intent. But unless I'm doing something interesting that with that character, it's not going to to matter at the end of the day. Another thing that that's rattled around my head in in terms of this this greater topic of broadcast versus real table, we touched on it a time or two. But the thing that I don't think a lot of people, if they've never tried to do it, even a lot of people don't understand the power of editing and just how much more smoother and more organized you can make something sound just by cutting out an um, a you know, making two seconds of silence three quarters of a second yeah. or, or whatever. We we constantly get requests from listeners or patrons to release the outtakes, release the unedited ep- episodes. And what we constantly tell them is like, we're not going to do that because they're just garbage. Like we're cutting out my filler words, silence, confirming a rule every now and then. It, it, nothing nothing interesting is happening when we edit stuff out. Like we keep the good bits for the show. But I absolutely agree with you that when you're listening to a podcast, especially, if it sounds super tight and well put together and the DM is always on and knows every rule off the top of their head and every player has a witty comeback ready to go, there are hours upon hours of audio on the cutting room floor that never makes it to the light of day. It's wonderful on the back end when you're doing the broadcast and hitting that moment that you know it's going to get cut out because you've set up a player to make a super dramatic line as they enter and the player in the moment goes, what do you do? I don't have anything prepped. Okay, hold on. Give me a second to figure out something cool to say. Uh, and that that's what the audience would be hearing if they were listening to the live footage is us just sitting around thinking about stuff for half the time and then finally doing the cool thing. And that's what makes it into the episode. So yeah, editing is the greatest tool in my toolbox as a DM to make myself sound good. I can manipulate the audio to make anything I want happen. I've gone back and retconned things in episodes where I realized, oh, I did did that thing wrong or I gave that character the wrong name or messed up this plot point. And while I'm editing, I will hit record and I will record something and just slot it into the episode and nobody's the wiser. And now any any of the listeners of Ever Unrenewed that are listening right now and feeling uh, an immense sense of betrayal, uh, it's, it's nev- never anything important. It's just silly things that I screw up. I just heard thousands <laughs> of keyboards clack away as they try to find... And maybe this is extreme, but the last episode that Steve and I recorded, I think I just finished editing it last night. And by the time I tacked our intro and outro on, I was at an hour three something. But the raw footage that I started with was an hour 27, an hour 20. And 90% of that is dead space, ums, it's filler stuff. Or the other thing that I've noticed us do is we'll start to say something, either lose our train of thought or realize we want to say it differently. And so we just start all over again from the beginning. And so instead of me having to splice together two words and then take out three and 
put the rest of the back half on. Now I just take out five mm-hmm. words and that's it. Yeah, the last episode that just released, the raw audio clocked in at just about two hours. And the episode that got released was an hour and 22 minutes with the intro and outro included. So yeah, if that doesn't give a sense to your listeners about the level of editing that I I have to do to make our episodes sound the way that they do, typically our recording sessions are five hours or longer to get three hours of content. I take a machete to the stuff. I don't hold back. I don't try to preserve the feeling of the table because that's not why people listen. People don't listen to have a like window into my game room and our actual game. They want to be entertained by the story that we're telling as much as some listeners might protest and say, no, we want the authentic experience. You don't because it's boring. It's not fun. The stuff that I cut out. Some of us think we do. Yeah, you think you do. But I could release an episode tomorrow of the unedited and you would realize how wrong you are. (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, I I told you that, you know, I recorded that session, the back half of a session just as a a test thing to, you know, learn editing and so forth on. And and listening to myself was painful. It really was. You know, yeah, you think, oh, yeah. I think to a certain point, probably because of the factors you mentioned, where you do get a bit more focused involvement, you do get a bit more buy-in that your table, so to speak, may run a little bit more smoothly than a lot of tables that are just playing home games. Yeah. But it's still a far cry from what you hear on the air. Yeah. I know there's even other shows, specifically I'm thinking of Sounds Like Crows, which is a Savage World's Deadlands podcast that I listen to a couple of their season retrospectives or whatever, and they will openly admit on those they do full retakes of scenes sometimes. Yeah, there's only ever been one. Uh, All of us will go to our grave, never revealing. There was an arc that we did that after the fact, we realized that something had screwed up with my hard drive to where in Adobe Audition, which is what we were using to record at the time, the waveforms were there. It looked like there was audio, but there was no sound after the first 20 minutes. The audio files were just dead. I could still open up the waveform files and it was like, it's, it's supposed to be there. It was an impactful arc that we knew we couldn't just leave up to the dice to recreate. So we re-recorded the arc and some of the dice rolls were faked to recreate what had organically happened. Like we weren't scripting the show. We were just recreating what had happened, but we didn't get on air. And yeah, stuff like that happens. And we, we will occasionally retake if somebody makes a joke that was just for us, like for us at the table, be like, okay, let me take that again, because that that was absolutely not for air and stuff like that. But yeah, and another aspect is switching to the Genesis system for this campaign. So much of the time that is cut is figuring out the dice pool and figuring out what's getting rolled, what symbols are left, figuring out what's going to be done with advantage or triumph. That's a lot of time that's cut out that if you're playing Genesis is going to take up a lot of time at your table and we cut it out just for the sake of of radio. See, that's something I actually have been curious about with that system and wanted to discuss that with Chris because it seemed like he'd be a great person to talk yeah. about that. But listening to your podcast and some of the other stuff, I understand the system, but it, and I wonder too how much of it, because I'm listening to a podcast, am I hearing you talk about spending the advantage or the thread or, or whatever? Because it's an audio medium, you as the broadcaster feel you need to explain that, or is that how much time it takes at a normal table when we can just see it? So I think that can be something that perhaps maybe runs both ways. 
Yeah, in terms of doing things like spinning advantage or threat or triumphs and despairs in Genesis, it's absolutely something that, like any other skill set in a tabletop game, becomes stronger over time. Like, if we were playing at a table, it would take Trevor, being very new to the system, probably a solid 90 seconds to look at a large dice pool and figure out what the end result of his role is. It would take me 15 to 20 seconds and it would take Chris zero. Chris would just be able to look and instantly know because he can do all the mental math very quickly. We are very cognizant of the fact that a lot of our listeners are learning Genesis for the first time through our show because they're coming over from D&D. So we do take a bit of extra time to explain things and, and talk through things that normally if we were broadcasting just for a Genesis audience, we would probably just cut out completely. But there is a lot more time at the table spent trying to figure out a good use for advantage or threat or something that is cut out of a broadcast format because it's literally dead air or us throwing out six different ideas that are kind of okay until we land on the good one. And then we'll just cut out a lot of the humming and hawing over the different options and just make it sound like, oh, I want to do this. It's like, okay, great. Let's move on. Fair enough. Anything else you can think of on the topic of differences and, and expectations? I, I, Either of you, really? I mean, from my end, being somebody that creates the content side of things and creates broadcast, but cut my teeth on just playing at home games and still get the chance to play for not an audience... I I just have to reiterate the first thing that I said of it's about having fun. It's a game night. You shouldn't put the burden on yourself to accomplish what people accomplish who have been doing it for a long time and have also developed a strong sense of how the tools work and a way to manipulate those tools to do something great and do something magical like they do on Critical Role. We, We kind of touched on some of the people that are more critical of Critical Role being especially uh, those players that skew maybe a little bit older and came up in the the hobby, I, I think a mistake that a lot of times we have is that experience equals expertise. And that just because you've been doing something for a long time, your skills have developed to the point where you are performing at a high quality. And I have to remind myself constantly to re-examine how I approach my table, how I do what I do, and what lessons I can take from the media that I'm consuming surrounding D&D and what I can take away and learn and make myself better. Just because you are an experienced dungeon master who have been doing it for a long time, Never feel like you have to stop learning and consuming these things can be a great tool to hone your craft. I just think name of the game is to have fun, whether GMing and you're facilitating that fun or you're a player experiencing it. And the game master should be having fun also. That's something that I think gets left out a lot of times is uh, when you watch Critical Role, you can see that Matt Mercer is having just as good a time as anybody else there. And a lot of times as DMs, we have this martyr complex, which like, oh, I'm there to make sure that everybody else has fun and it doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It's like, no, you should have a good time too. So just have fun with the game. It's a game at the end of the day and nothing more. What about you, Steve? Got any more? No, I every question I've had you've asked and has been answered. So, <laughs> oh, you can add psychic to your resume. <laughs> I, I do my best. <laughs> So we have a little thing we do at the end of the show. We call it Game of the Week. And you're welcome to play along if you'd like, Eric. Yeah. Game of the Week. Game of the Week. 
Okay, who wants to go first? Do you want to take this one, Steve? Do you want to go first this time? Yeah, I'll go first. I'm going to highlight the Alien RPG starter set. The new one from Free League? Yes, that is a game system that I'm incredibly interested in. It looks like a really cool system, and it actually looks like a really fun version of playing in that world. And I will be picking up a copy of that just to play in that world. Awesome. That sounds cool. You want another example, or would you like to have a go at it, Eric? Yeah, I can go. Okay. I actually just got in the mail, I ordered the PDF plus the print version of a new RPG that just a sample adventure has come out. It's called Swords Fall, and it's from an independent developer named Brandon Dixon. And Swords Fall is an Afrofuturistic role-playing game based loosely on the Genesis dice system, although he created it to be able to use the numerical dice, but still has advantage, threat, that kind of stuff involved. The adventure is called The Summit of Kings, and all combat is oratory. It's like a setting exclusively for bards, essentially. And all combat is done through vocal attacks. A lot of it is is portrayed very much almost like rap battling is how you do combat. And so I am very excited to get it on the table. But if you go to swordsfall.com, Brandon's doing a great job of highlighting his full process on developing this world from the ground up. And the art in the adventure is amazing. I think you can go get the PDF for like five bucks off the website. So that's what I'm excited to get on a table next. I like that art style. That's super cool. Yeah, it's super cool and really unlike anything I've come across in looking at little independent developers and just so inventive. So I'm, I'm very excited about Swords Fall. Yeah, that does. That sounds incredibly cool. I think a lot of people, especially people newer to the hobby, just don't realize the breadth of what's out there in that if you want to play darn near anything, there's probably something already published for it. And if there isn't, there's games like Genesis or Savage worlds that are designed to make your own game around a theme. You know, they give you the engine, you just add the world. Yeah. So anyway, it's my turn, and um, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction. And I think what I've decided I'm interested in this week is a game called Knight's Black Agents. This is from Pelgrane Press, written by uh, Mr. Kenneth Height, who, if you're not familiar with, is one of the godfathers of horror RPGs, I guess. But to give you a brief overview of what this game is about, it's set in a neo-modern world. Think very much something along the lines of the World of Darkness from Vampire or whatever. But to read a little bit of the blurb from Drive Through RPG, it says, The Cold War is over, Bush's war is winding down. You are a shadowy soldier in those fights, trained to move through a secret world, deniable and deadly. Then you got out, or you got shut out, or you got burned out. You didn't come in from the cold. It goes on to say, now you're in Europe working for all these crime networks and so on and so forth. You basically is an assassin. And so you start getting a lot of work. And gradually you find out the people that have been hiring you are not just organized crime. They're vampires. And so now you're in this thing where you're basically playing former spec ops vampire hunters, but you also work for vampires. And something I found out just in the last week or two is that the original conception of the game was that it was to be run kind of in conjunction with Vampire the Masquerade to the point where even, say, you play a campaign for so long as the vampires, and then you turn around and play it from the other side as the hunters. And I thought that that was... 
incredibly cool. Yeah, that sounds super awesome. It's Pelgrain. It's the gumshoe system. If you've ever done anything with that, Kenneth Height's name being on it. I mean, he's worked on Vampire. He's worked on Fall of Delta Green. He's worked on all kinds of uh, of horror stuff. Unlike a lot of the, the titles that we've brought up, you know, this one is, I mean, PDF is 25 bucks, but you can get it on drive-thru. There's a lot of support stuff out for it, but it sounds like it could be, you know, Jason Bourne type thing. Um, that type of action, but with a horror element on top of it as well. That's awesome. And with that, I think we've come to the end of our episode. We want to thank you very much for being on and, and being our first guest. And, you know, we really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on and talking to us today. Yeah, it was fun. I appreciate you guys having me. Yes, thank you very much. You know what we should ask you, though, is I know I mentioned this early on, but where can people find you and your work? Yes. <laughs> so all of the podcasts get put up on thegeekpantheon.com, or you can just search for Eberron Renewed or The Knowledge Check in your respective podcatcher. And then we also have a YouTube channel that we've been posting to regularly and growing. It's just the Geek Pantheon. And in terms of socials, if you want to follow the shows, we have a Facebook group, the Geek Pantheon, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram at the Geek Pantheon. Cool, cool. Yeah, you know this, obviously. I'm on your Discord. Oh, yes, of course. We have the Discord. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a link to our Discord on our website, thegeekpantheon.com. That's probably the best place if you want to join the community and talk about the shows. It's a lively place, too. A lot of discussion on your Discord. Yeah. I hang out there from time to time. I'm not the most vocal person. It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, I think that's a show. I think with that, time to say be kind to each other and go play some RPGs. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash meandsteverpg. Thank you and be kind to each other. How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that. What was it like actually running Eberron for Keith Baker? Yeah, running Eberron for Keith was a lot of fun. All of them were were wonderful players. And Keith is a wild card. He was a lot of fun to play with, but, you know, he will just pick up the ball and run in any direction that you give him to go. So it was a lot of fun, a little intimidating just at the prospect initially. But once we actually got playing, you could tell that like the advice that I've been giving this whole episode, Keith was just there to have fun. And he just wanted to have just as good a time as anybody else. So we all had fun and called it a day. So, yeah, it was it was great, though. It was definitely something if you would have asked me five years ago, hey, do you think you'll ever do this? I would have been like, no, how would I ever do that? So, yeah, it was great. That's cool. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) okay. (laughs) No. Well, All right, so let me retake Steve. that and change it completely. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. All right. Okay, now now Zencaster is hot. All right. Yes. <laughs> hey, and I and I even managed to not stumble over any of the podcast names. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's try it again. Three, two, one.